Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Kelly McCormick. Kelly is associate professor of philosophy at Texas Christian University. Her research is focused on questions of moral responsibility and the various practices by which we hold one another responsible. Her new book has just been published with Cambridge University Press. Its title is The Problem of Blame, Making Sense of Moral Anger. Now, blame seems both morally necessary and morally dicey. It's necessary because it appears to be central uh, in our holding others to account for wrongdoing. It's dicey, on the other hand, because at least in its standards forms, blame involves the expression of anger, and it also aims to impose some harm on its target, maybe in a very small sense of harm. But what's more, our blaming practices appear to presuppose a kind of free will that some would argue is implausible. In any case, we're aware of the many ways in which blaming can go wrong. We sometimes criticize others for being too blamey. Are we ever justified in blaming others? Now, in her book, The Problem of Blame, Kelly McCormick defends blame. She develops a novel theory of how agents can deserve a certain kind of blame and answers a range of skeptical views according to which because the relevant concept of desert should be jettisoned, no one ever deserves to be blamed. Now, along the way, McCormick introduces a range of insightful methodological considerations that help us to navigate the debate moving forward. So, as usual, there's a lot to talk about, but also, as usual, we will begin with our guest. Hello, Kelly. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, and thanks for uh, for joining me for a discussion of your wonderful book. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, that's fabulous. Why don't you, uh, you know, we usually start off uh, by asking the author to say a few things uh, about herself. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, um, I guess the most pressing thing I've got going on at the moment is I just had a baby. <laughs> uh, so... Forgive any uh, mom brain that might fog up points <laughs> in the interview. This is kind of my my first toe dip back into uh, professional responsibilities, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm originally from upstate New York and uh, ended up in Texas, and I've been here for about eight years. So that's been a really interesting adventure in itself um <laughs> so for this summer it's been 112 uh, more days than i care to count uh so 
Yeah, I never thought I'd be living on the surface of the sun, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and floods? Are you are you where there's flood problems? Yes, yeah, those are also nearby. That's at any given day, you you never know how Texas might try to kill you. <laughs> Seems to be uh, the upshot, but <laughs> there are many there are many nice things about Texas too. I think it gets a bad rap uh, sometimes, fairly, but you know there are are some nice things about being here as as well. So we'll see. <laughs> well, very nice, very nice. Um, so let's talk about the book, um, and um, we can begin at the beginning if that uh, is is okay with you. Um, you know, wanted to, I wanted to just you know start off by asking you about how you you sort of frame you know what you call the problem of blame. Um, as you note in the book, um, the philosophical vocabulary here uh, is not well behaved. Um, you know, there are lots of different things that are called blame. And sometimes when people are arguing about uh, the moral justification or appropriateness of blame, it's very easy sometimes for them to talk past each other because they're thinking of two different or at least two phenomena both plausibly thought of as blame that that are philosophically worth uh, keeping distinct. So um, you identify a particular kind of blame, what you call reactive blame, and you identify two desiderata that an account uh, of this kind of blame, or maybe a justification of this kind of blame, uh, needs to satisfy. You know, so can you can you st- set the stage for us by identifying, uh, you know, the, the kind of blame you're keen uh, uh, to defend in light of what you call the problem of blame? Right. Uh, thanks, Bob. So, so the problem, as I see it, is uh, really one of those philosophical problems that seems to be hanging out somewhere in the foundation of a philosophical debate, um, so usually causing trouble. <laughs> um, and, and no one's really dug it out and examined it uh, kind of closely on its own. So so the way I see the problem is basically as a tension between the good stuff that blame does for us. For example, uh, it feels like a really essential way of calling out injustice and holding one another accountable. Uh, and then on the other hand, all of the nastiness, so the anger, the harm, sometimes even flat out violence that tends to go along with blame. Um, so blame is one of those features of life that seems to have this can't live with it, can't live without it sort of uh, quality. Uh, so, so given the popularity that a, a variety of skeptical views about free will and by extension moral responsibility and blame have enjoyed recently, I see the problem in its most basic form as raising the question of whether or not it's possible to provide a normatively adequate account of the worst kind of blame. So that's what I call reactive blame. Um, This kind of blame uh, is the one that involves the varieties of moral anger, so resentment, indignation, and guilt. Um, And I take some time at the start of the book to distinguish between this kind of angry blame, the kind that hurts, and other sanitized varieties. So, for example, maybe T.M. Scanlon's uh, would would be a, a, a good one to note here. Blame without the blame. Blame without the blame, yes. The famous criticism. <laughs> um, McGear told us, yes. Yes, exactly. What a great phrase. I know I love that. Um, so, so I think that explicitly restricting our focus to this kind of blame can help in a couple of different ways. Uh, first, it allows us to make some real progress in figuring out what a positive account of basic dessert of blame might look like. Um, I know you mentioned this earlier in your synopsis. I think we'll talk about it a little later. So I'll I'll set that aside for the moment. But the insights when it comes to dessert are are one of the big features of focusing on reactive blame, especially. Um, Second, explicitly restricting our focus to reactive blame invites us to think more carefully about the role that the negative reactive attitudes play for the kind of angry, harmful blame we're worried about. So there's this this long history in the literature of uh, sort of dismissing this kind of blame as not descriptive accurate, uh, because when it comes to the actual psychological phenomenon of blame, uh, there seem to be loads of examples of instances of genuine blame without uh, the experience of uh, some variety of moral anger. So I think this is representative of a mistake that lots of folks have been making in terms of how to think about reactive blame. Basically, they're assuming what I call some kind of reactive essentialism, in thinking that the experience of a negative reactive attitude has to be a necessary condition for every genuine instance of reactive blame. 
And so at the start of the book, I take some time teasing out how to make sense of other, more plausible ways of thinking about the nature of the central role that the the negative reactive attitudes play for this kind of blame. So I talk about uh, what I call functional reactivity and canonical reactivity. These are uh, proposals from Angela Smith and uh, Victoria McGeer that we might use to uh, make sense of other sorts of central roles that don't involve essentialism. Uh, But then uh, perhaps most importantly, I think that restricting our focus to blame, uh, to reactive blame, helps us really narrow the focus on what it is we're trying to make sense of when it comes to the problem of blame. So what blame skeptics, I call these folks blame curmudgeons in the book, borrowing, yeah, from this this awesome, colorful terminology that Christopher Franklin came up with. So I have to give uh, Chris credit for that one. Um, So these curmudgeons, these eliminativists who are skeptical about blame, What they're really worried about uh, is the normative adequacy of angry, reactive blame. They want to know if the worst kind of blame is permissible, and they, at the end of the day, don't think that it is. So once we focus on just this kind of blame uh, exclusively and stop kind of mixing it in with other more sanitized versions that tend to sidestep problems that arise for blame... um, once we do this, I think there's a useful analogy between thinking about the normative adequacy of blame and thinking about the normative adequacy of punishment. Uh, so this is super helpful given the vast literature on the problem of punishment. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, we can learn from what a large number of very smart people have already said about the desiderata for normatively adequate accounts of punishment. Um, I won't get too far into the details uh, here, but where I land is on this pair of desiderata for a normatively adequate account of reactive blame. One involves the value of blame, and one involves uh, basic desert. And I think at the end of the day, if we can meet both of these desiderata, what we end up with is an account of how any reasons we have not to reactively blame because of its harm are outweighed because blame entails some overwhelming good. uh, And also they can be defeated because in at least some cases, blame is deserved in the basic sense. So with this kind of an account in hand, I'm not sure there's really anything further that blame curmudgeons can really reasonably demand. And so in the first half of the book, the goal, uh, one I hope that I've accomplished, is to take on this task of uh, making sense of, of moral anger, as I say. Right. Very good. And and, and let's just um, let me just mention to, to our listeners that, you know, the book does have a, um, you know, a, a really nice structure in that the first part of the book is sort of laying out your account of reactive blame and your defense of it, and particularly your argument that um there are certain instances where reactive blame can be uh, basically in the basic sense that is deserved. Um, And then the second part of the book is uh, taking on um, the skeptics and curmudgeons um, with, uh, but by first clearing some methodological uh, uh, issues up, which uh, we'll, we'll get to in a moment. Um, But to pick up on, uh, on the argument then in the, in the first part of the book. So, you know, the sort of the hinge on which things are turning is, um, you know, the concept of basic dessert and uh, the curmudgeonly people uh, in the world about this issue, at least, are also, uh, are, you know, when you, they're skeptics, so they're skeptics of a lot of things, but a lot of things. But fundamentally, it's basic dessert skepticism. Um, so, um, this is a view that says the, the skepticism says that um, uh, no agent ever is deserving in the proper sense or the basic sense of dessert uh, blame. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that concept of how does basic dessert differ from dessert in other senses and why is it so, why is that the fulcrum of this debate? Sure. So, so one of the primary distinctions just between basic dessert and other kinds of dessert, I think tends to be cashed out in terms of forward looking versus backward looking dessert. Um, that's not the full story, um, but that's kind of the really basic distinction. Um, and so, so many of the arguments for skepticism, as you said, take this, um, take it as an uncontroversial assumption that our blaming practices presuppose agents deserve moral praise and blame in the basic sense. Uh, so they go on to argue that agents can't deserve blame in this sense. So we ought to give up the blaming practices that we have, or at least radically revise them in a way that excises 
comprises the elements that do depend on basic dessert. Um, so, so in the book, I point out that this assumption about the importance of basic dessert is usually taken to be a kind of bedrock point uh, of agreement, actually, between uh, skeptics and non-skeptics alike. Um, but there's very little discussion about what the heck basic dessert of blame actually amounts to. So in the book, I call it, uh, borrowing from Michael McKenna, uh, this kind of elephant in the room, right? Everyone thinks it's really important. No one knows uh, what the heck it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so often yeah. the case in philosophy, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So, of course, being a masochist, I'm like, I want to try to figure out what this thing is. <laughs> um, and so... Um, uh, I took on this task of, of trying to give an analysis of basic dessert of blame. Um, and as I said at the outset, I think uh, focusing on reactive blame is going to help. So um, there's a few things to say about what basic dessert isn't. Um, I've already mentioned those. Uh, it can't be grounded in consequentialist, contractualist, or other explicitly forward-looking considerations. But usually that's where the analysis stops in just this purely negative characterization. Um, um, and so, yeah, I want to tackle this project head on and try to give an actual positive account. Um, so um, I think focusing on reactive blame helps here. Once we've zeroed in on that, um, I think that this positive account emerges that I call the fittingness account. Uh, and it's, yeah, so, so it's based on the way that we already think about other effective attitudes. We often make sense of whether or not other emotionally charged attitudes are appropriate or not in terms of whether or not they're fitting. Uh, and whether or not they're fitting depends on the kinds of reasons that they're based on. So the, the classic example that folks often cite here when they're talking about fit, fittingness accounts is one that involves admiration. So if we imagine a world where an evil demon with no admirable qualities nonetheless commands us to admire him uh, or else some horrible punishment is going to befall us, uh, this seems like a clear case in which our admiration would be defective in some way. It's not fitting. Uh, and it's not fitting because it's based on the wrong kind of reasons. This kind of reason for adopting an effective attitude, uh, the kind of reason that Pamela Hieronymi calls a content-related reason, Derek Parfit calls them state-given reasons, uh, can, yeah, so that they can best justify our admiration of the demon. There's a sense in which I certainly wouldn't fault you for uh, getting yourself to admire him if you can, given the, the horrible punishment that's looming. But if you're able to do that, you're able to genuinely admire him, there's still something defective about your admiration. Uh, what you need in order for this attitude to be fitting is actually an object-focused reason. So one that tracks genuinely admirable properties possessed by the demon. Uh, now that's kind of a, 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 <laughs> a detour into different kinds of reasons, but to, to kind of bring it back to dessert, I think we, we can and should say much the same thing about uh, blame and basic dessert. So one way of thinking about what's going on with your admiration of the demon uh, is that the demon doesn't deserve your admiration. Uh, so likewise, when the negative reactive attitudes that are central to reactive blame aren't fitting, they're grounded in the wrong kinds of reasons, uh, they're not deserved in the basic sense. Um, so what basic desert of blame amounts to, I think, is something similar to what the fittingness of other effective attitudes amounts to. Um, so an agent deserves blame in the basic sense in virtue of some dessert base where the relevant dessert base has to be the right kind of reason, some kind of object focused reason to blame. Uh, but of course, that's all the easy part. <laughs> the hard part is figuring out what the heck the right kind of reasons to reactive blame actually are uh, and doing that in a way that doesn't turn out to be viciously circular. So, of course, circularity is a big kind of objection that fittingness accounts in other domains often end up uh, kind of saddled with, uh, saddled with. So I spend a lot of time thinking in the next chapter uh, about that stuff. Right. And just to be clear, you know, it's not that, um, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I, d d the, the view winds up being um, not invulnerable to a circularity object, not invulnerable to circularity as a property, but um, you defend it against the idea that the circularity is, is vicious. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe we can't avoid circularity in some of these domains just because, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of umpires playing the game. Um, good. Um, so uh, 
you're very careful then, uh, even in the, the time we've been talking, um, to, you know, remind us, uh, remind your readers uh, through the book that it's reactive blame. Um, and the third chapter is devoted to talking about the nature of this kind of blame. I take it that um, once you've established, uh, you know, um, uh, a, a particular conception, a fittingness conception of what basic dessert is, and we're after the question of whether anyone can deserve in the basic sense blame of the reactive sort, the next obvious uh, uh, question, if we're being systematic, is, well, what is what kind of thing is reactive blame? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the nature of this kind of blame and then return us to uh, the two desiderata um, for a normatively adequate account and, um, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about why this account helps you show that uh, certain instances of reactive blaming uh, uh, are, are, are fitting and appropriate. Yeah, good. So so the last sort of puzzle piece in being able to, to return back to the payoff of uh, examining whether these desiderata I started with can actually be met or not is uh, figuring out what features of reactive blame might be relevant uh, to figuring out what the right kind of reasons are. Um, because a lot of a lot of the, the work that needs to be done in responding to curmudgeons concerns that dessert-based desiderata. Um, everyone's kind of on the same page about value, but dessert is where most of the action is. Um, so, so when it comes to the nature of reactive blame, um, I'm, I'm primarily interested in this third chapter in figuring out whether we ought to take a wide or a narrow narrow construal of which attitudes count as the relevant reactive ones, uh, and then thinking about what kind of propositional content these attitudes share in the service of settling on an account of, again, the right kind of reasons to blame. This is, uh, as you know, a long chapter. <laughs> so, it's very, very good. Oh, it's a very, very good chapter. Thank you. I was told by a referee um, for the cognitivism section, they were like, you could inform the reader to skip this <laughs> on, uh, on board. So if anyone is really, I won't talk about that here, but if anyone is really interested in a defense of uh, a cognitivist view of the reactive attitudes, chapter three is the place to go there. Um, yes. <laughs> but I won't bore you with the details that clearly bored the referee here. Um, so, so let's see. Um, what do I want to talk about in terms of this? Um, so, so where I settle is in terms of uh, wide versus narrow construal is on a narrow construal. Uh, the negative reactive attitudes. Um, so I want to focus just on the varieties of moral anger, resentment, indignation, and guilt, uh, because these are, again, precisely the kinds of harmful attitudes that blame curmudgeons are worried about. Uh, and a narrow construal is also the best way, as uh, folks like R.J. Wallace have pointed out, thread this needle that arises in thinking about an account of the negative reactive attitudes that's both psychologically realistic and also allows these attitudes to hang together as a class. Um, so Strawson famously cast the net of which attitudes count as reactive in terms of our interpersonal interpersonal relationships pretty widely um and then and let's be clear we mean pf strawson pf strawson point. not galen <laughs> no. <laughs> no 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 galen's one of the curmudgeons <laughs> that's right that's right that's right. <laughs> right right so um so he cast this net very widely and then folks like wallace came along and said well yeah in casting the net widely you're really capturing all these features of our practice in a way that makes the reactive attitudes seem really necessary but i think when we're theorizing about responsibility and blame, we have to narrow the focus because if we want to understand what what might unify blame as a phenomenon, we really we, we need that class to hang together in some way. So I'm going to follow Wallace and assume this narrow construal, it has the added benefits of concerning the kinds of attitudes that curmudgeons are worried about in the first place. Uh, so that's kind of where I land there. Um, and, and once we've settled on a narrow construal, I think we can then make sense of the right kind of reasons to blame in terms of the propositional content that unifies this class of attitudes. Um, so, so ultimately, I think the right kind of reasons to blame turn out to be grounded in our expectations of one another. So this is also this very kind of Strawson-Wallace type view. Um, yeah, so, so blame will be fitting, and in my case, deserved in the basic sense, um, 
Uh, so an agent will be deserving of blame in the basic sense, just in case their action or the quality of their will violated an expectation constitutive of one of their interpersonal relationships, and the blamer believes that this is so. So that's kind of the, the view. I call it RKR in the book, this analysis of fittingness that I end up uh, uh, putting all my cards on at the end of the book, or at the end of this uh, chapter. And then there, there are, of course, really interesting things to say about what counts as a constitutive expectation um, that makes up one of our interpersonal relationships and interesting questions about which relationships count and how do we handle blaming strangers and things like that. Um, I mentioned some of that in the book. I wish I had space to, <laughs> to talk about it further, but that, that's one of the things I'd like to, to look more carefully at in the future, those, those sorts of questions. But answering uh, the, the question of what does basic dessert amount to in terms of this formal analysis RKR, I think is enough to then return us to the two desiderata that I started off with at the beginning of the book. So with this account in hand, um, I offer arguments that both the, the value-based and dessert-based desiderata of normatively adequate blame can actually be met. When it comes to the value-based desideratum, I think that the reasons we have not to reactively blame are outweighed by the fact that reactive blame plays a unique communicative role in valuing what we ought to value and sustaining the moral norms essential to our shared moral communities. Uh, insofar as we want to live in communities that value anything, uh, reactive blame plays a pretty crucial role in doing so, I think. Um, uh, I also think that these arguments for the value-based desideratum, I think I mentioned this a moment ago, um, are pretty straightforward. <laughs> They're not very controversial. Even a lot of cur curmudgeons, I think, are happy to grant that blame has some clear value despite its nasty side. Um, otherwise, their skeptical positions wouldn't be that interesting. Uh, so where matters really get tricky is meeting that dessert-based desideratum. So here the fittingness account and the right kind of reasons are going to come back into play. Those do a lot of heavy lifting, as does this parity of reasons argument uh, and some lessons that I think we can learn from perceptual models of the emotions. So um, I'll discuss, discuss each of those a little bit. Um, so in terms of the parity of reasons argument, um, there are some interesting similarities between the propositional content of our negative reactive attitudes and a certain class of moral judgments that we already take to have a kind of privileged epistemic status in our moral theorizing. So I argue that the similarity involves the very same features of these moral judgments that best explains their privileged status, so namely their widespread convergence and their concreteness or their effective component. And so by parity of reasons, uh, their status and the fittingness of the negative reactive attitudes should either stand or fall together. Ultimately, I think that our reasons for taking this broader class of moral judgments, so things like torturing someone for fun is wrong, <laughs> Uh, insofar as we think those are important judgments that need to be respected in our moral theorizing, um, our reasons for preserving those far outweigh the reasons we might have to be skeptical about fittingness for blame. Uh, and so I think at least some of our attributions of reactive blame ought to inherit the same privileged epistemic status as the moral judgments. Um, and therefore, we can conclude that negative reactive, the negative reactive attitudes are sometimes fitting and deserved in the basic sense. Um, so that's if the parity of reasons argument goes through. But second, I, I think there are also some considerations in favor of thinking that uh, the dessert-based desideratum can be met when we look more carefully at perceptual models of the emotions. So um, I don't really have a horse in the race in terms of whether or not those models are actually correct. Um, but I, I do think that a specific objection to them suggests that the negative reactive attitudes sometimes might provide indirect evidence that blame is actually deserved in the basic sense. Um, so, so the objection I'm interested in highlights the fact that there are these important epistemologically relevant differences between our perceptual experiences, so things like there's a laptop in front of me right now, in uh, our emotional experiences, which uh, bars our emotional experiences from constituting direct evidence for the truth of their propositional content. Uh, 
so so I argue on the heels of this kind of objection that even if it's correct, there's a subset of our emotions, the emotional experiences that correspond to explicitly moral evaluative beliefs. So there's a, a difference between the uh, the belief that um, so there's a difference in the emotional response we might have to a dog, like so a sort of fear response when a dog is growling at us off their leash, um, and uh, the belief that a a person testifying in court is untrustworthy. One of those has a kind of moral character where the emotion is doing some uh, additional work. Whereas if you know everything about the dog that there is to know descriptively, your emotion of fear isn't giving you any extra evidence that the dog is actually fearful. But I think when it comes to the, these, these moral evaluative beliefs accompanied by these emotions, um, they don't provide direct evidence for thinking that your evaluative belief is getting things right. Um, so say the mere fact that you feel distrustful of the subject doesn't directly provide evidence that they are untrustworthy. Um, but that feeling might give you some indirect evidence uh, that there are reasons to take this person to be untrustworthy around. Um, so the, yeah, so the analogy I use here is a kind of uh, that the, the, the negative reactive attitudes and other emotions that correspond with these moral evaluative beliefs, they, they function as a sort of reason detector. Um, so they, they can't provide direct evidence that the right kind of reasons to blame are present, turning back to blame, but they do offer uh, pretty good indirect evidence that there are such reasons around, and so we, we might want to go digging for, for those. And so even if this is indirect evidence, it might be the best indirect evidence we have in this domain, and so I think the negative reactive attitudes could really plausibly be doing a lot of good epistemological work for us in figuring out whether blame is actually deserved in the basic sense. And uh, as I said, ultimately, I think we've got good reason to think that sometimes it is. Um, yeah, so I think I think that might be it for <laughs> in chapter four. That's all I have there. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, you know, you said something a little bit earlier that I, I just want um, to ask about. Um, because, you, you, uh, you know, um, your account, uh, if you won't mind me saying, is, um, at least from the outside, uh, is very Strassonian. Yeah. And, and I, I, I take that as a compliment. I do. Well, yes. <laughs> okay, good, good. And, you know, in thinking, uh, in reading your book and then thinking about some of the, um, uh, some of the, the R.J. Wallace stuff and then thinking also about some Gary Watson stuff. Um, you know, what you said earlier about um, blaming strangers, um, you know, called to mind, you know, some of my, uh, some of the knowledge I brought with me of that Strassonian tradition to your book, because, you know, it's not only strangers that create uh, problems for the sort of, for this kind of account that is about the interpersonal relations, but, you know, um, temporally distant dead people. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Those pesky distant and the dead. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, can I ask you just a, a question? And um, maybe an, this is an invitation to, 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 to speculate a little bit about um, one kind of case that, um, I, you know, not too long ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, I got deeply interested in, which is the uh, the discussion that Watson has of the of the psychopaths. Right, Robert right? Harris. These are folks, <laughs> yeah, the Robert Harris case, right? So these folks who um, are present with us, so it's not the temporally distant uh, uh, people who are no longer with us, and they're not strangers, uh, again, in a in a sort of geographically distant sense, but they're strangers in an emotional or they're, they're more like aliens. Um, and I worried, you know, you know, one, one sort of worry one might have about sort of Strassonian sentimentalism is that um, the worse, you know, the worse your behavior is, the harder it is to see you as somebody who's got the right kind of, uh, well, sorry, the worse your behavior is, the more likely we are to see you as an alien in a sense that makes it hard to see why the reactive attitudes would be um, appropriate. Because, you know, when you're an alien, sort of holding you responsible is kind of, you're not one of us, as, as, as Wallace eventually starts, starts talking about the Robert Harris. Could you, could you just say something a little bit about how one might, on your account, sort of start thinking about the, I know that <laughs> you need to write a second book uh, about this, but. Oh, it'd be um, so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you say something a little bit about just that, you know, that worry that the Strassonian accounts seem to make 
the worst of us unblameable. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, I, I think this is such a good question, um, and it, it's one it's one that I have to think about a, a bit more, but I do. So I teach a moral psychology seminar and we spend a lot of time talking about psychopaths um, right. and whether or not they form genuine moral judgments. And if they, if they're incapable of doing that, then can they really be members of our moral community? Because of course um, the, the, the kind of, standard response to the initial worry for for the kind of view I'm defending about strangers, the dead and the distant and our ability to blame them, I think is to just kind of pull from uh, T.M. Scanlon's work on this and his appeal to the moral relationship. Um, So these sorts of weird cases are going to be funky for literally any account of blame other than skeptics because for skeptics we're all on the same uh, We're all aliens to one another. We're all aliens, exactly. (laughs) You know, when you think about it that way, it might be another looming objection. (laughs) But um, yeah, so so I think the initial way of thinking about this sort of problem is to appeal to the moral relationship and the fact that um, by standing in interpersonal relationships with one another at all, there are just some sort of basic expectations that are constitutive of those relationships. Maybe by mere fact of our ability to uh, really respond to moral reasons or form expectations in the first place, you know, something, something Scanlonian is what you want to say there. Um, but then psychopaths continue to pose this problem and they, they pose a problem for Scanlon too. So this is, this is a big problem for him as well. Um, and, um, I think at the end of the day, this might be a bullet that uh, most success theorists about blame and and moral responsibility that make appeal to um, our interpersonal relationships or our reasons responsiveness are probably going to have to bite that that psychopaths may be sort of beyond the realm of blame and uh, our practices of holding one another responsible in interesting ways. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, we let them run rampant, right? So, so of course, um, we can fall back on the objective attitude, as Strassen said. You know, they can they can be uh, subjects of, of treatment. You know, we, we might be able to look at them in a therapeutic way. And so they, there could still be um, a place for them in our practices that acknowledges the difference. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, there's something kind of distasteful about that sort of attitude i think so you run into problems no matter what you say here <laughs> that's right i mean and and the uh, the addendum to that um this is a, for those who, who might not know there's a sort of widely read gary watson paper about psychopaths right uh, and this particular psychopath um and they um named robert harris um and the addendum to that where you know you you find out like what what robert harris what robert harris's last words are and you kind of find yourself flipping back from the strassonian objective stance to the participant stance all of a sudden and you worry what that means retroactively yeah. is that right yeah that's right that's right <laughs> Um, well, good. I I accept that your answer seems to be totally sensible that, you know, there are going to be these cases, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe psychopaths are, 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 um, a, 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 a rich site of these kinds of cases that are going to be a problem for any positive, any account of blame. That's not a limitativist. Is that right? Yeah, I, I do think so. I think psychopaths tend to pose a puzzle across the board. Um, they, um, some views can can sort of accommodate them better than others, but no one really accommodates them all that well, <laughs> I think. So, so psychopaths are, are super interesting. I, I wish I had like a kind of clearer, uh, more definitive answer here, but I, there's not much beyond just saying, I think this is really cool to think about. Um, and, and when it comes to my view in particular, I, I don't think I have any um, any higher, I don't think there are any higher costs for the view that I'm defending when it comes to accounting for psychopaths. They're just one of those kind of tricky, tricky features. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, that seems right to me. That seems right to me. For what it's worth, that seems right. That you're, you're not, you don't have any special problem that uh, other accounts like yours... Um, good. So um, let's talk about the second part of the book, which, um, again, I found deeply, deeply, I mean, the whole book is very in- incredibly interesting to me, but um, from uh, a person coming at this issue um, from the outside, as it were, which you know, this is not my uh, thing that I you know work on as a philosopher, um, methodological stuff is always very interesting to me as a, as a philosopher. So the second part of the book addresses Particular skeptics, particular blame skeptics or curmudgeons, uh, sometimes we think of them, you call them eliminativists. Um, because that they they're they're skeptics about they're skeptics about reactive blame because they're skeptics about moral responsibility as such because ultimately they're skeptics uh, about free will or hard indeterminists or however you want to whatever they like to call themselves. Um, so um, you begin with some really inter- I thought very insightful methodological points about um, uh, about skepticism in these areas. Can you sort of help set up some of the methodological, because I think that this is a really nice way to engage with skeptics of any kind, by the way, is just to, instead of, you know, addressing the skepticism head on, you have to talk a little bit about, you know, methodology and how to proceed in philosophy. Yeah. So can you set that up a little bit for us? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. So um, I, I think I think that's right, that that um, these views share a lot in, in common. Not They're not specific to the free will literature um, in any way. So so this is really one of the parts of the book that in a lot of ways I've been thinking about the longest. Um, so I've, I've always found in, as you said, like a lot of different domains, uh, there's this move from skepticism um, and as, as I see it to eliminativism. And so um, initially this move seems fairly simple. The skeptic says something like, Hey, this thing we've been talking about often for a very long time is uh, it's messed up. (laughs) Uh, So it doesn't do what we need it to do in order to make sense of ordinary usage or it doesn't seem to pick out any unified feature of the world or it entails something that we can't or at least shouldn't endorse. Uh, Or maybe we even think that it's downright incoherent or inconsistent. Um, so these varieties of skepticism pop up all over the place in philosophy, but there's there's shockingly little analysis of uh, what a move from this kind of view, what I call mere skepticism, so this descriptive position that we've made a huge mistake about some of the world in the simplest terms um, to full-blown eliminativism. Um, And this is a a corresponding prescriptive view that we should do something about it. So we ought to abandon the thing in question. We should eliminate it from our ontology or our language and at least some of our practice practices. And so we've got these two kind of distinct positions that often get run together. Um, So in the free will literature, it, it sometimes seems like there's there's an assumption that the jump is automatic here. Skepticism just somehow entails eliminativism. Um, and, and that's always struck me as a, a shaky assumption at best. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not there are any methodological burdens on eliminativists beyond just showing what's wrong with uh, the concept or other success theories of free will. Because I, I guess in the, in the simplest way to put it is just 
is that the way these views are often presented is here's a problem. Free will is just hopelessly messed up. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> um, and the idea is that there's just kind of some some entailment between the two parts of that statement. And and I don't I just don't think that there is. I think they logically come apart. So um, so right because the, I'm sorry because these these arguments you know the GE Moore response always seems to me whether you whether you think it's a a winning response or not at least it's a permit burden shifting is permissible <laughs> cognitively and so that looks like it just it can't really be an entailment if the burden shifting move sort of is philosophically available and and not illicit right yeah exactly um, yeah, yeah yeah so so here's what I what I've come up with um, I think that there are these two primary methodological burdens that uh, eliminativists are stuck with so in terms of free will but also probably in a bunch of other domains um, so first uh, to, to get to the Morian point um, they have to fix what I call the skeptical spotlight um, <laughs> so all varieties of eliminativism start with again this diagnosis of some kind of mistake or problem regarding the target concept and then they go on to claim that the problem is fatal in some sense but uh, in many of these cases if not most of them uh, the problem tends to take the form of some kind of inconsistent set so in the case of free will there's some necessary or constitutive feature of free will that can't be rendered consistent with some other independently plausible and and widely accepted beliefs or principles. Um, so maybe just to use a simple example, I talk about Haji's view in the book, but that, that might be a little too complicated. Um, so, so a simpler one, I, the reason I spend so much time talking about that is because I think Haji just lays out so clearly uh, this kind of inconsistent set. <laughs> uh, so he really identifies that, and so I think it's a nice way to think about the spotlight. But um, a simpler case might be uh, just in, in Paraboom's case for his hard incompatibilism. He thinks that ultimate sourcehood is uh, the kind of control necessary for free will to be deserved in the basic sense, uh, and this ends up being inconsistent with compatibilist accounts of control while also leaving incompatibilist accounts of sourcehood at odds with our best scientific views of the world. So something's got to go. <laughs> and for Paraboom, of course, it's, it's going to be free will. So where, where I kind of enter here is why think that the inconsistency can't be resolved in some other way? Um, Paraboom, to return to that example, begins with free will in his crosshairs because, you know, he's concerned about the harms of blame. And so it's no great surprise that that's what he thinks should go. But what if you're someone approaching the question with, say, deeper concerns about the value of our practices of holding one another responsible? So what if you're a recent victim of some kind of harm or wrongdoing or justice? Or what if your primary motivation for caring about free will in the first place is the fact that you want to get a clear idea of the conditions under which we ought to hold perpetrators responsible um, and in doing so respect the value of some class of victims? That's a totally different and I think also admirable direction to approach free will and to care about it in the first place. But it's very different. Um, and um, if you're approaching free will from that angle, then you're likely to find some other member of the inconsistent set to be the weakest link. So maybe the claim that the ultimate source, maybe the claim that ultimate sourcehood is necessary, um, or even the way that we currently think about our best scientific theories of the world. There might be different bullets that you want to bite in this case. Now, that's not going to be an easy task for Paraboom's opponent either, um, because the kind of problem that he and skeptics are highlighting um, is this especially uncomfortable inconsistent set. So it's one where all of the planks are going to be beliefs or principles that we really want to keep. <laughs> um, and so one of the most interesting skeptical insights is that no one's going to be happy here. No one's going to end up having everything they want, rationally speaking, in the relevant domain where skepticism is cropping up if, if those descriptive skeptics are right in identifying a problem in the first place. Um, but, but where I think skeptics move too quickly is in thinking that by merely identifying this fact, the burden somehow squarely shifts to their opponents to accept their own conclusions about which belief or principle has to go. 
at the very least, I think it's open to success theorists and those responding to skeptics to push back on skeptical arguments by shifting that skeptical spotlight back to some other member of the set identified by the skeptic. Um, so, so one burden I think eliminativists need to meet is that they have to fix the skeptical spotlight by offering at least some degree of comparative defense for their claim that the plank of the inconsistency they've keyed on uh, really is the one that we should jettison. Um, so that's one big burden that I think um, eliminativists are saddled with that really has been largely overlooked um, um, in a lot of different areas. Um, but but that's only one. So, so I also think that um, even if eliminativists can fix that skeptical spotlight, they also have to meet what I call the motivational challenge. So uh, yeah, so, so the basic idea here is that even when eliminativists fix the spotlight, they still need to motivate full-blown elimination over preservationist alternatives uh, that claim we can still retain free will and its attendant practices uh, with a substantially or sometimes even radically revised concept. Um, so, so here's another analogy that, that might be helpful. Um, we can think about free will and its place in our conceptual schemas and practices as playing a similar role uh, to an important order organ in our bodies. Uh, even if eliminativists are right and this organ is failing, uh, we might still repair it with substantial surgery and so revise our concept by excising only the problematic feature or features. Or uh, we could replace it with a suitable transplant. And so we could abandon free will, but identify some other nearby concept capable of sustaining at least some of the corresponding practices. Um, so this is a very revisionist idea uh, from uh, Manuel Vargas, um, where you accept kind of the descriptive skepticism. There's something really messed up about free will, but we don't have to go all the way to elimination. Um, there are either ways of fixing up the concept that retain genuine free will, or there's kind of free will star somewhere in the neighborhood and we should kind of pop that in <laughs> to the practices and it'll do all the same work uh, that the, the problematic kind of free will we thought was doing in the first place. Um, so in order to meet this motivational challenge, I think eliminativists have to show that either we can't or we shouldn't pursue either one of these options. Um, and then ultimately, I think that their prospects for doing that aren't great. <laughs> um, but these arguments involve uh, a really lengthy detour through issues involving uh, the way that we think about what makes a feature of free will constitutive or essential. And all of that, I think, bottoms out in thorny issues regarding the way that the term free will refers. Um, so, so all of chapter six is devoted to a deep dive into questions about reference and the way that different reference conventions might inform um, our existence claims about free will. Um, so I won't talk about this here and, and bore the listener, but... Um. <laughs> it's a very, very good chapter. But let, let me just ask for the upshot. So is the is the conclusion that you reach um, the what I understand to be a, a sort of Strassonian conclusion, which is that we can't revise these practices in the way that the eliminativist wants us to and still recognize ourselves uh, in the mirror, as it were? <laughs> or is it that we could, but we, but the, the burden hasn't been met to show that we ought to? Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, I think the burden hasn't been met yet to show that we ought to. Um, it, and eliminativists, um, so, so Paraboom, for example, has, he kind of started off with um, this very kind of hardcore eliminativism, get rid of free will, it's got to go. Um, but then, and blame, especially along with it, especially the kind of angry blame that I'm interested in. But more recently, I think he's kind of come back to center a little bit and, and kind of uh, realized that, oh, wait, blame <laughs> does a lot of good stuff too. It might actually be really impor important. Maybe we can't or shouldn't uh, fully get rid of it. And so he's more recently defended this kind of Scanlonian blame. Um, I think if, if that's where, even if that's where eliminativists think we should end up, um, uh, blame without the blame, as we said at the outset, without the, the angry stuff, is going to be a really radical change uh, to the way that we treat one another. Um, yeah, and so and so I think even if that's where you land, you have to you have to show that we've got good reason not to um, revise our notion of what 
it means to be deserving of the angry kind of blame. I think it's the angry kind of blame and our retention of that and what makes it fitting or deserved that eliminativists have to do a little bit more work before they kind of throw it out with the bathwater, if that if that makes sense. Perfect. Perfect. So, um, Kelly, you've, you've been really generous with your time. So I want to make sure that um, uh, we get to talk about uh, the, the closing of the book, um, uh, the, the last uh, chapter, um, which is all about the dark side of free will, which my uh, college friend, uh, Greg Caruso, is very interested in. Um, <laughs> I think that's the name of his TED Talk. Um, uh, so one way to motivate, I guess, uh, free will skepticism and then ultimately uh, eliminativism is to focus on what's called the dark side of free will, the ways in which belief in free will and basic desert and moral responsibility and that whole sort of a collection of uh, of, of concepts um, seem to be correlated with all kinds of problematic views about punishment and how harsh punishment should be and incarceration <laughs> and, and this sort of thing. Um, can you tell us a, a, a bit in the time that we have left, uh, tell us a bit about your response to these sort of dark side considerations? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so so that's right. Over over the last couple of decades, I think uh, free will has really gotten kind of a bad rap. <laughs> Um, so, uh, it's been empirically tied to, uh, as you said, this, this kind of family of troubling political beliefs. Um, and there have also been worries that, uh, our practice of moralized blaming and our systems of criminal punishment, uh, uh, run the risk of causing widespread and significant harm. Um, so, so these are largely, when we talk about the dark side of free will, I think we're talking largely about pragmatic concerns about free will. So we're kind of falling back to this, this old, old school discussion that arises out of Strassen's freedom and resentment about assessing the gains and losses of keeping versus, uh, uh jettisoning some of our responsibility and blame related practices. Um, so I end the book with them because I think, I think these concerns about the costs of blame or the dark side of free will um, are always going to be powerful um, and to some extent they're going to be reasonable. Um, so so I want to finish by tackling um, at least two of them head on in, in the book. So, so I start with Nadelhofer and Caruso and Waller, who have all recently been focused on empirical work suggesting this apparent correlation between belief in free will and uh, what they call just world beliefs and also a commitment to right-wing authoritarianism. So right off the bat, doesn't sound good, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> yeah, not great. <laughs> so um, just to say a little bit about each of them, though, I think the name already kind of implies what we've got going on here, but... They're both uh, measured empirically using a relevant scale. And when it comes to the just world beliefs, the empirical scale that they use includes commitments to beliefs that people deserve what they get, that good tends to win out over evil. That one doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> um, and that people met with misfortune often bring it upon, upon themselves. So that one does not sound great. Um, and then when it comes to right-wing authoritarianism, we're talking about reference to beliefs that authorities are usually right, while radicals and protesters are often loudmouths, um, our country desperately needs a mighty leader capable of destroying the threats of radical new ideas. So I'm just reading the scale here. <laughs> Um, and that it's always better to trust the judgment of the proper authorities um, rather than listen to noisy rabble rousers. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> if, if yeah, these are all bad. <laughs> I don't, I don't want, uh, I don't want to be saddled with with any of this stuff. So, so two important points I think worth noting here. Um, are first that I agree that there's ample evidence to suggest a robust correlation between this constellation of beliefs and the belief in free will. Um, and also that just world and right-wing authoritarian beliefs uh, are deeply troubling. So I want to grant both of those things. There is a correlation and these beliefs suck. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, if it turned out that we have good reason to think that the belief in free will causes these kinds of beliefs, uh, th then I think 
think this would be a feature of the dark side of free will that's dark enough to to recommend taking eliminativism seriously on pragmatic grounds. Um, but of course, there's a but. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that we have that we do have any such reasons. So so first, while the correlation between these beliefs and belief in free will is robust, uh, the result. This result is uh, both unsurprising and, and it's kind of uninteresting. So that's because there's also a well-established, there's also well-established empirical work suggesting that belief in free will is incredibly widespread. So outside of the realm of a small subset of philosophers, almost everyone believes that we have free will. Um, and so... Uh, mere correlation between just world beliefs and right-wing authoritarianism and belief in free will doesn't tell us uh, much at all about any deeper causal collection, uh, connection. Uh, belief in free will is going to correlate with just about everything. <laughs> so anything you right. kind of run the test for, you're going to get the result that you're looking for. Um, but, but I think there's also more to say here. So, so the feature of just world beliefs that skeptics tend to focus on uh, is the belief that is that that part where people who have suffered misfortune have brought it upon themselves. So that's the feature that seems to be the most objectionable. Um, this is a disturbing belief, largely because, as folks like Caruso and Waller both emphasize, it's often lodged most often against victims who are members of some vulnerable or marginalized class. Um, but is belief in, in free will the best or even a good possible explanation for why these victims in particular are being blamed for their misfortune uh, more often? And I think the answer here is obviously no. Uh, so, so in fact, if belief in free will were doing the causal work here, then given the widespread nature of the belief, what we would expect to find would be attributions of victims, attributions that victims are to blame for their own misfortune across the board. But we don't find this. Instead, you know, we find women are blamed for their own sexual assaults. The poor and minorities are blamed for any harmful consequences of criminal behavior. Um, but the most privileged among us are rarely blame for their own misfortune. Um, in fact, we often <laughs> go to extremes to make excuses and cast about for others to blame on their behalf. And so it seems to me just uh, kind of obvious that our biases are doing a lot of the work here to explain why we often blame the victims that we do for their own misfortune and not belief in free will. Um, and so in light of that, I don't think that the correlation between just world beliefs and right-wing authoritarianism uh, and the belief in free will presents much of a pragmatic threat um, at all. Um, so I also spend some time talking about uh, one other big feature of the dark side, which is concerns about harming the innocent. Um, I don't know. Do I have time to, to say something quick about that or should yeah, I? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so so um, I, I think these sorts of concerns are more powerful, but um, I don't think that they really motivate any kind of brute pragmatic argument for eliminativism either. So as we've already talked about, skeptics are usually motivated by this worry that we have a kind of basic moral reason to avoid the harms of blame, absent one of the only countervailing reasons that could defeat it, namely the fact that this harm is deserved. So uh, I'm really sympathetic to this worry, but it takes on some puzzling features as a potential motivation for eliminativism in particular. Um, and that's because one prominent objection to eliminativism itself is that eliminativists can't adequately explain how we could continue grounding a prohibition against harming the innocent. So, so this objection has been argued persuasively by uh, folks like Saul Smolansky and John Lemos. So, uh, the, the basic idea is that we can only make sense of a deontological prohibition against harming the innocent if we have a robust dessert-based distinction between those who are guilty and those who are innocent in the first place. Um, but if eliminativists are right, then no one is ever deserving of blame, and so there's no such dessert-based distinction. Uh, so the guilty is not someone who deserves to be punished, while the innocent uh, uh, are those who don't deserve it. And so at best, we can kind of descriptively call out 
about um, those who have caused harm guilty and those who haven't innocent. But without the notion of desert, why well, think that it matters, morally speaking, whether we harm the innocent, say, to prevent future harms that they may or are even likely to commit? Um, so so these are there are things that a limitativist can say here, but I'll, I'll confess that a lot of them feel to me like trying to sneak desert back in through the back door. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. And, and so I tend to agree with folks like Smolansky and Lemos that at, at best, eliminativists are in a, kind of a particularly bad position when it comes appeal, uh, to appealing to, to this feature of the dark side of free will to kind of motivate their views. And so um, that kind of brings me to just the last argument that I discuss yeah. in the book. It's really one of my favorites, but it's so quick <laughs> um, at the end. Um, uh, so this is one that, that I wish I had a lot more space to develop, and, and I'm hoping to do that in the future. And it's this argument from empathy uh, that I end with. So the, the heart of this argument is that I think eliminativist views about free will, responsibility, and blame uh, themselves have this really troubling dark side. Um, so as I've said a few times already, I think the motives behind eliminativist views are often good ones. Uh, people like Paraboom are genuinely very worried about uh, widespread undeserved harm, uh, and they think that our blaming practices deliver a whole bunch of it. Um, but in focusing on this kind of harm, I worry that they have a tendency to overlook another kind of harm. And that's the harms that would result for victims if we were to abandon uh, our responsibility-related practices. So um, I really think that our practices of holding one another responsible, and especially of reactively blaming one another, are one of the best, if not the best, tools that we have for protecting and defending victims. Failing to reactively blame perpetrators um, adds insult to injury. So, so anyone who's ever been on the end, the receiving end of some kind of wrongdoing or injustice and watched everyone around them ignore <laughs> the phenomenon, I think will understand um, in a really visceral way the, the, the point here. Um, that, uh, you know, at minimum, failing to reactively blame perpetrators can harm victims further, and it can even undermine the respect that we have for them and their status as full-fledged members of our shared moral communities. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm sympathetic to a lot of concerns about the dark side of free will, but I just can't imagine wholeheartedly taking on board the practical implications of illuminativism either. The cost of trying to tell a rape victim that her rapist is no less a victim than she is, because of course, uh, if eliminativists are right, the, the rapist is also largely a victim of circumstance and factors that trace back to points beyond their control. Um, that's not a cost that I'm willing to pay. Um, and so, yeah, maybe maybe there's some middle ground to be found here, and I actually hope that there is. <laughs> um, but for now, I want to throw my hat in squarely with victims and uh, the, the need to protect and defend them. And I think that we need blame and moral anger, this nasty, painful stuff uh, in order to, to do that. Well, no, this was a compelling argument in the book. Um, it's, it's always, always nice, nice when a book ends with a good argument. <laughs> so, um, uh, but um, for now, um, Kelly, I, I, I want to thank you uh, for for writing the book um, and for joining me uh, on this episode of New Books in Philosophy. It's been a real pleasure oh, yeah. uh, to talk to you. Thank you so much for reading it. <laughs> I really appreciate that. This is this has been great. Fabulous. Um, uh, so let's uh, thank the listeners. So listeners, thank you for joining us uh, for um, our discussion. I've been talking to Kelly McCormick. Uh, her new book is titled The Problem of Blame, and it's just been published with Cambridge University Press. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Philosophy. Uh, thank you for that. And bye for now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.